I have left one Rishi amongst you, which is Tarka, uh, the capacity to, to infer, the capacity to, to draw conclusions, rational thinking. That is the last Rishi that I have left with you. Follow that. Namaste and welcome to the Vichar Manthan podcast. My name is Sumit Sharma and it's my great privilege to be a part of this team. The Vichar Manthan podcast is a VM project looking to explore modern day issues through a dharmic lens in hopefully a relaxed and engaging manner. Please tune in and subscribe. And if you agree or disagree with any of the comments, please let us know. Let's keep the conversation going in an earnest manner. Be critical and let's explore together. You can email me on podcast at vijarmanthan.org. Today, I'm very fortunate to be joined by Siddhartha Ji Krishna, who currently resides in Rishikesh, and is going to help me understand a topic that I think I have been trying to explore for many years. Maybe not proactively, but any time is great right now. If I look back at the civilization that I come from, I know there are many scriptures, there are many books. If we refer to some of the Abrahamic faiths, they have like a single book. So often I wonder, what is the Hindu book? And so Siddhartha Ji here today is going to help us uncover what I'm calling the Hindu library. Siddhartha Ji currently resides at the Omkara Nanda Ashram in Rishikesh. And actually, I'm going to bring him in now to explain a little bit further. Uh, Siddhartha Ji, welcome to the VM podcast. Thank you very much, Sumiti. Thank you very, very much. It's a pleasure to be part of this podcast. Thank you. I, I think we have much to uncover from from the topic we have, and from you as well. You know, in some of our earlier conversations, uh, I've already begun to to learn a little bit about where scripture comes from. But for our audience at home, and maybe for anyone that's not tuned in before, can you help us understand uh, sort of who you are, where you come from, and and why you know so much about a topic like this? I live in Rishikesh, which uh, today is known really as the world capital of yoga. I was born into a family of uh, yoga teachers and yoga practitioners, which means that uh, my father is a scholar of Sanskrit. He has been teaching yoga as well as uh, giving discourses all his life on uh, various scriptures in India as well as abroad and my mother is a senior Iyengar yoga teacher so she has been studying for more than 20 years with BKS Iyengar one of the topmost uh, yoga teachers in in the 20th century and so I grew up first of all in this uh, family uh, with a very strong yogic background. And then it was the decision of my father uh, to introduce me to Sanskrit at a very young age. And uh, then, uh, so th- the first thing that already at the age of uh, four and a half, and this in fact started uh, when I was in London for, for a few months in 1984, that uh, my father asked my mother to make me learn uh, the Bhagavad Gita by heart. Oh, wow. And at so a, that's at the 
tender age of four. That's um, four and a half. Yes, wow, that's how the wow. journey started. And uh, then, yes, as we came then to Rishikesh in, uh, when I was five, uh, first of all, I studied with him, and uh, then at the age of eight, uh, I was he he took me to Kailas Ashram. Uh, which is a 150-years-old monastery here in Rishikesh, specifically dedicated to the study of uh, Advaita Vedanta. Uh, people like Swami Vivekananda have been related to it. Chinmay Mission uh, has been related to it. So, uh, yeah, so since my childhood, I've been in this environment. And uh, then after that, I wrote uh, several books and I've been teaching these texts basically since 2004 very nice and we're 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 blessed on the podcast to have you here today to thank you uh, very un much unlock it's, thank you very much for having me <laughs> thank you and we're gonna we're gonna hopefully unlock some of this wisdom so um i guess if we if we dive right right into it really if i look at some of the abrahamic faiths you can pinpoint a single book mostly um about i guess what is most important to that religion but when I look at Hinduism, like I know that we have several books and people revere the, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana and then the Gita kind of has a, an extra shining light on it. So Siddhartaji, help me understand, um, where does it all begin? What's maybe the first book? Uh, I've got many questions. So maybe if you help us understand, where, where does it all start? Uh, the very origin of uh, the Hindu culture lies within the Vedas. So that's really the very starting point. Amongst all the texts, uh, collections of teachings that uh, are available to us today, the Vedas are really the most ancient and foundational to the Vedic tradition, to the Vedic civilization. That is why it is known as the Vedic civilization. So, so and you say ancient, so how, what, what does that mean? According to modern historians, that means uh, at least 3,500 years ago. Well, of course, there is a lot of debate around that. Some people sure. believe it's even 10,000 years, but yeah, mostly the consensus right now lies at 3,500 years sure. approximately. So definitely a long time before a, a lot of modern civilization as we know it. Yes. Um, and so let's, let's understand the Vedas in more detail. So I know there's four of them. Are they all dedicated to a different thought process or what are they really about? Why would one be interested in the Vedas? Is it simply because they were the first ones? Is that right? Yeah. So first of all, there is this, uh, the most ancient one is believed to be the Rig Veda, which is a collection of hymns dedicated to different deities. But the Rig Veda itself in one place at least expresses very clearly that these all deities, they are different names of the same timeless presence just being expressed through different names. And as some traditions also believe that they have specific forms, so according to those traditions, then also different forms. So the Rig Veda has hymns dedicated to these deities. Samaveda, most of the Samaveda, in fact, are mantras, verses taken from the Rig Veda, but the style of recitation is very different. It's more, it's sung instead of, it, it's not re recited, but it is sung. So that's 
Samaveda. That's why Indian classical music uh, uh, has its origins in Samaveda as well. That's, and that's, then, very, that's very interesting, the, the point you're making there. So Rigveda, you would say, are more like a set of hymns that are recited. Yes, Rigveda has, yes. And Samaveda is more like mantras that are sung. Yes. And so the very externalization of this knowledge when spoken out loud is done in a different manner. And I'm, I'm going to assume that's fundamental to the knowledge within. Yes, yes. Uh, for example, then the Yajurveda is more spoken. The Yajurveda is not composed in meter. It has no meter at all. Right. And uh, it's dedicated more to rituals. So Yajurveda is the most ritualistic of all. Uh, so you can say uh, Rigveda is more devotional. Okay. Uh, Samaveda is more singing, devotional as well as singing. Sure. And Yajurveda has more rituals in it. And then the fourth one, the Atharva Veda, is a collection of many, many things. It has, uh, it has hymns, it has, uh, and, and it has also what uh, can be seen as uh, some formulas which bring change in life, but then have also deeper meaning. So that's wow. the Atharva Veda. Wow, that's But great. something that, that usually is not uh, often mentioned is that uh, each one of these Vedas then has four sections within them. Okay. One is the most ancient section, which are the hymns. And then the second section is like a ritualistic commentary. The, th the third section, the Aranyagas, they are meditative commentaries. And then the last one, the Upanishads, they are mystical commentaries. They have the realizations of uh, those ancient masters. Wow. Yeah, so each Veda has these four clearly it's defined... Built into sections, yeah. Yeah, sections. So there's a lot to unpick there. Um, and I'm going to go with the last thing you said about the Upanishads. So that's another in my buzzword when it comes to the Hindu library. So the Upanishads are the fourth section within each. Yes, that's why they are also known as Vedanta, the end of the Vedas, or the conclusion, the quintessence of the Vedas. That is why Brilliant. this word is also used for the Upanishads. Very nice. And and what does... And, and what, let's let's define our term. So Vedas, where does that? What does the word come from? What is the, the meaning? The of word Veda? Veda comes from the root Vid, which means to know. So basically, Veda simply just means very literally, it means knowledge, knowledge, it means right. wisdom. And and knowledge of what though? Like the world, how it is, the the, the nature of reality, the knowledge of one's true nature the knowledge of uh, what I as an individual am in the absence of any external influence, but what I am really in my true nature when not being influenced by anything 
external. And that's quite a feat, I think, in it's the modern world. <laughs> I think especially in the modern world as, as well, right? Where, you know, people who live a, a fairly normal life, have a nine-to-five job, have a car, kids, you know, there are thousands of things that are going to affect their psyche, affect their mental. But So what we're really talking about here is some, some uh, fairly deep, spiritual, those perhaps reading this are maybe um, detached, perhaps non-materialistic, but not necessarily, right? Anyone can read the Vedas. Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the Vedas, they have, that's why they have these different sections for okay. uh, people in different stages of life. And uh, I mean, today, mindfulness has become such a big thing. Everybody is talking about it. Yeah, and it comes from one of the Upanishads. It's, in fact, uh, mindfulness is a translation of the word sati, as used by the Buddha, which originates in that particular sense in its Sanskrit form, smriti, in Chandogya Upanishad. So it's, it's a method of, uh, of, of achieving that state of inner pristine calmness which is the nature which is which was thought to be the very nature of every living being when not under the influence of uh, external circumstances this does not mean a total disconnect from external circumstances but learning not to allow uh, the external changing circumstances to influence the inner too much brilliant and ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here on the Vijaramantan podcast. Mindfulness, the popular term that we heard here today, came from ancient Hindu texts from within the Upanishads, inside the Vedas. That's where yes. mindfulness came from. Yes. Brilliant. There is much yes. wisdom to be learnt. And thank you again, Siddhartha Ji, for coming on to the VM podcast to help us uncover a little bit further uh, what we're calling the Hindu library. So we've talked a little bit about Vedas and, and what they are, and I'm sure there is lots, lots more to talk about those, but we've, we've got to get through this this library, right? I need to understand a bit further. So let, let's move on to the Upanishad. So what does Upanishad mean? Yeah, Upanishad is... Upa means close, and Nishad means to sit down. So the, 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 the most simple, I mean, the, the word can be explained in several different ways, but the, the, the most simple explanation of this term would be the wisdom that a student receives as he sits down close to his teacher, that would be the first layer. And the second layer would be that ultimately it is the wisdom that a person receives as he or she sits close to themselves, to their true nature. So in very simple terms, that is what we call. Shat is in fact the same word as sit in, in English. You know, sit, sat. It's linguistically related. We have shat and shidati, sidati, to sit. So it's, it comes from there. To sit, to sit down close to oneself or to a teacher. That, and, and I think, especially when words are in English, they are even more open to interpretation. So when we... One translation I was researching on, on Upanishad was along the lines of, come near and let me destroy your view. 
and I, I loosely I loosely see the link to the way you've described it there in as in sit down it's almost like lower your I don't know ego expectation lower those like when and then when you l- learn your true self the closer you get to your true self the more those things are stripped away so I guess in learning wisdom like this there is that destruction of you that isn't really you <laughs> I think exactly exactly in fact uh, this definition uh, this explanation of the word upanishad originates from uh, from a text by sureshwaracharya 8th century ad he explains upanishad as that which as you approach it it because the the root shat can also mean to destroy but then destroy wow. what so he explains it as destruction of ignorance wow and destruction of the self which arises out of a improper understanding of one's true nature wow so the kind of understanding that for example we have of ourselves in the dream world because we have forgotten what we truly are and so we start identifying with one particular character in the dream world and whatever then happens to that character we 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 superimpose it back on ourselves yeah. and, then and we'll, and we'll defend it as well we we'll, defend we'll, it as well we'll defend the character that we have exactly assumed. exactly and in a sense we are defending that character against ourselves because the lion or uh, yeah the creature that is haunting us or that is jumping on us it's also part of our being in the same way as that character that that inner conflict is ever present in the yes. mind of man yes that lies at the origin of the of the upanishads because wow. every upanishadic teaching starts from that inner conflict between uh, the good and the bad forces within a human within the human psyche very nice and that this this delusion almost that we're talking about could that be referred to as tatya Uh, that delusion is referred to as avidya or ajnana okay uh, the word that you used which word was that uh, tatya so opposite of satya almost like relative truth uh, tatya tatya yeah uh, in fact i think uh, the word that uh, gaudapadacharya uses is vaitatya so vaitatya is the opposite of tatya so he uses wow. this word in his in his karikas on on the mandukya upanishad one of the sections is known as the section on vaitatya the section on false understanding because tatya would be tatha means as something which is the way it is supposed to be and vaitatya would be the opposite of that okay so okay. if you see a rope and you think it to be uh, a snake then that misconception of it as snake that is vaitatya and right. the rope is tatya okay yes okay quite deep let's mm-hmm. um let's understand so uh, here's something else i i noted from our early conversation you were talking mm-hmm. about hymns mm-hmm. um and what they're dedicated to and my understanding of some of these hymns are almost a dedication to nature you know whenever we sit down to do a, a part or a puja or a, something like a vivasanskar or something a bit larger pandit ji will recite hymns and these hymns are often dedicated to nature and what i what i think i understand about that is when man was first 
understanding the world around him, he personified the forces of nature. Yeah, like we have Surya Devta, sun god. We have rain and and wind and all the forces really. So, is is that right? That understanding of what those hymns are? Yes, there is a lot more th- more to that. So, uh, usually, all the devas found in the so these are the divinities found in the Vedas. They are categorized under thirty three divinities. Eight of them are natural forces. Twelve uh, of them are temporal forces, forces within time. And so the first eight, they are macrocosmic forces. And the second group of 12 is uh, temporal forces. The third group are microcosmic forces active within the human body. And then the last two, they are the seer, and the principle of sacrifice. So it's a lot more than that. Uh, The natural forces are just eight. And uh, ultimately, again, uh, what we have have to keep in mind in the context of the Vedic teachings is that when they speak, for example, of the sun, then it's not only the external physical sun, but the sun that the yogis speak of within themselves. Or when they speak of the mind, of, of, of the moon, then it's not only the moon out there, but it refers to the mind, which very much like the moon does not have its own light, but gets illuminated by the light of consciousness in the understanding of the Upanishadic masters. So wow. it works very much like the moon, and that's why the internal mind, the moon becomes a symbol to the mind. So that is wow. how uh, these external forces then are on a deeper level also interpreted uh, as forces active within the body which then become objects of meditation and contemplation and to explore the depths within oneself deeply deeply layered is it's deeply layered yes deeply deeply layered is the philosophy of some of these texts and i think we owe it to those that have dedicated their life to understanding such literature and passing that knowledge on. Yes. Um, and much of the world is built like that, but you won't often find uh, a rishi or someone so knowledgeable uh, around. Like, you know, they're, they're not on social media. It's not so easy to, to, to follow them. So uh, I guess there is, maybe... There is, there is a very interesting story in this context towards the end of uh, a 6th century BC work uh, that when all the rishis left, there were no rishis uh, anymore on on the face of the earth. Humanity went to uh, to the to the divinities and said that you have please send us some more rishis. We need someone to guide us. Then the divine is supposed to have said, according to the story present there, that I have left one rishi amongst you, which is Tarka. Uh, the capacity to to infer, the capacity to to draw conclusions, rational thinking. That is the last rishi that I have left with you. Follow that and follow the teachings that are there. You will never go astray. 
So even if we read all the books, we're still left our own devices to to interpret and think and infer. In fact, one of the first teachings that I was given as a child is that in the same way as a mirror is totally useless uh, for someone who has no eyes, mm. uh, these texts, they are useless for someone who has no internal uh, does not make an internal appro- internal effort sure. to understand them. So they have to talk to the internal aspect. These are texts that you won't get benefit from by just reading. There's got to be a, a degree of contemplation and sitting down and analysis. A Some effort is required on your part to... Yes, in fact, the word brahmacharya... Uh, just precisely means this. Today, the word Brahmacharya is being given a very limited uh, meaning, but in fact, it simply means lifestyle to explore Brahman, and Brahman in this case precisely refers to the Vedic knowledge. So the kind of lifestyle that a person needs to live uh, to explore these Vedic teachings, that is what the word Brahmacharya stands for. Thank you very much, Siddharth Ji. We have been talking about uh, the Vedas, Upanishads, uh, some of the detail around some of those, but why is something like scripture so important? Why does, say, the Hindu religion need its books? What has that done for mankind, for history? Uh, First of all, the Vedas were written down as books only around the 9th century AD. Before that, it was more uh, uh, teacher-student, so the teachers uh, gave these teachings to their students. The student, they memorized it, kept it in memory. Even today, there are people who who have uh, kept alive the tradition in that way. And in fact, you can have mistakes in, uh, in the books, but if you're not sure about those mistakes, you can actually check with them and... Uh, that's, that's how precisely they have. And there are elaborate methods to keep this precision intact. What, what, a, what a unique science. That's very strange to hear. If yeah. the books have got it wrong, we can go back and check with humans because the way in which they've learned it, there can't be mistakes? Yes. Wow. Yes. Wow. Are there, are there, is there anything else in the world that's like that? Uh, not known to me, I accept most likely uh, some of the Buddhist uh, uh, Theravada Pali texts. I think some of the monks, uh, inspired by this same dedication to the Vedas that they saw, they have this dedication also for the Buddha's wow. teachings. And so my understanding about why, import, why texts are important to mankind is because knowledge was passed through scripture. Yes, it was passed through scriptures. It is, it is like uh, uh, the way Patanjali puts it, that they are one of the three methods of acquiring infallible or correct understanding. So you have your senses, you have inference, and you have the experience of the ancient masters. So... Our senses help us to gather information about the world out there. Inference helps on both ends, external as well as internal. And the Vedas help us 
explore the internal world. So simply if you just close your eyes, all you see is darkness, but then the Vedas, they give us the light and the tools, the practices. Uh, yoga has its origins in the Vedas. So the whole system of yoga as a tool to explore the inner layers uh, of, of a human being, that for that, I think uh, we are immensely dependent on uh, these teachings. And that is why even before asana, Patanjali, the great master of yoga, before yogic postures, asks his students to study the teachings. And the whole idea in yoga, in fact, is that uh, uh, practice and study, they both go hand in hand, mm. because uh, the more you practice, the deeper you understand the teaching, and the better you understand the teaching, the deeper you can go into your practice. Perfectly put. Theory and practice go well yeah, together. Yeah, theory and practice go well together. Yes. I'm, uh, I'm finding it very difficult to sum up anything you say because you, <laughs> you're so eloquent in your, um, the way you're describing things, and it's great. It's fascinating to be on on this side. So, Siddhartha we've spoken a little bit about. And I keep a little bit. I think we'll ever get to the end of the Hindu library, but we will push on. But before we go there, and it's my great privilege to do this because we'll get to learn a little bit more about you. But now we're going to enter the rapid fire round. So, Dadaji, what goes into your perfect breakfast smoothie? Oh, smoothie. Uh... Or, or, or just your perfect breakfast? Yeah, perfect breakfast. Okay, parantas we have here in India. Uh, that's quite common. And then one vegetable, that's usually what I have, any vegetable really. And uh, yeah, that's, that's it. When I have it, but I don't have it every day because usually we have an early lunch. So you sh I don't have breakfast regularly. But when I have, this is what, what's it, yeah. I, I love burrantas for breakfast too. So uh, <laughs> ne next time you're in the UK, please please come over. I will we'll have to have burrantas together. together. <laughs> um, this I really thought about asking you this one, but I'm I'm going to do it anyway. If you were stranded on a desert island and you could only take three items with you, what would they be and why? Uh, the Bhagavad Gita. Okay, we'll talk more about that later. Sure. Yeah, and uh, my laptop. Okay. And my mobile. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Okay. My laptop because I have my entire library on it. Sure. And my laptop allow uh, my my mobile allows me to be in touch with all my friends. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. We don't ask for much, hey. Mobile, laptop, and of course, the Bhagavad Gita, which we will cover in more detail later on yes. in this podcast. Yes. Um, what is the best piece of advice anyone has ever given to you? Mm, the best piece of advice that uh, I go back again and again is to keep on looking for unity in diversity, but at the same time, respecting and appreciating the diversity as well. So unity in diversity with total respect for diversity. Wow. That has sort of been my 
guiding principle in everything that I do. That's great. And I think a lot more people need to hear that and then understand that. That was quite deep. Thank you for sharing. Do you have a favorite book? Uh, Other than the Bhagavad Gita? Uh, Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Other than the Bhagavad Gita, my favorite book uh, is the Upanishads. That's that's what I like uh, tremendously. But that's not one book, is it? Yeah, that's 108 books? Yeah, 108, but 10 classical ones, most ancient ones, the most respected ones. Uh, Yeah, these are... These are basically the Yoga Sutras would be the third one. Sure. And I guess I guess on an episode called the Hindu Library, that this wasn't a very <laughs> great question because we're <laughs> going to be going through most of them anyway. Um, <laughs> Siddhartaji, what does sustainability mean to you? Yeah, I've been exploring this uh, idea lately quite a lot. And uh, I think to lead one's life as simply as possible, with as few possessions as possible. And that's part of my upbringing, the way my father, particularly, he made me travel on foot uh, without money through different parts of India with him already quite young as a child. Uh, To be honest, my mother always used to give me some money which I used to hide uh, for just in case there is uh, there is an emergency. But for him, uh, he didn't know it. He just wanted us to be really uh, traveling. So, uh, so that we learn how to live with as little things and as few possessions as possible. And it's, it's a wonderful revelation because uh, ultimately you realize how few things you really need in your life. And the rest just takes up a lot of space so decluttering, I think, is uh, is what I try to practice. Yeah, quite a lot I, think, in my I life. think physically and mentally, right, and and on all levels, really. Yes, uh, on all levels. It starts from the physical level, but then you realize that in fact you are cluttering thoughts in your own mind. So then it also goes onto those levels. Yes. Brilliant, and yes. that's why I think we should. Um, all maintain a clean space in which we occupy. And for most people, if you can start with your bedroom, if you can keep your bedroom tidy, make your bed every morning, that's, that's the beginning of some that's sense of discipline, of sense. Yeah. the beginning of decluttering, and then you can extend that decluttering process to the, the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> so actually, I'm not going to ask you to make a commitment today, but if you could share with our audience a commitment that maybe they could take up to be more sustainable, what would that be? Every every podcast I have, I ask mm-hmm. I ask my speakers to make yes. a commitment to how, how they can be more sustainable. And we've had all things like I'll do more yoga, or I'll, I'm going to uh, reflect on my own uh, finances, etc. So we've, we've had a few. Is there something that you could share with our audience? That's something that they could take up if they wanted to reduce at least one possession. Try to see what can be uh, externally as well as uh, internally, because I think one of the core messages, the first message that the Upanishads uh, bring across is that nourishment, deeper nourishment, does not happen by accumulating, but by letting go, which is a very counterintuitive statement, because usually we think that we nourish ourselves by accumulating a lot. 
but on this path, uh, nourishment happens by reducing uh, our possessions. That's great. So that would that's be a wonderful. That's that's a commitment that that I myself uh, try to practice as well. Very nice. Yes. Thank you very much. So I think we'll we'll end the rapid fire round there. Let's get back into exploring the Hindu library here today on the Vicharamantan podcast with Siddhartha Ji Krishna, mm-hmm. uh, live from Rishikesh. Thank you once again for joining us. Thank you, once again, Sumiti. So we've we've talked about um, Vedas, we've talked about Upanishads. Um, I want to know, um, only because I've watched them both and I know a little bit about the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. Like, how important are they? Where do they fall in the in the pecking order of the Hindu library and can we talk a little bit about them in more detail? Yes. The Vedic Hindu library is divided into Shruti and Smriti. So you have what we just discussed now, uh, which means earlier, the Vedas and the Upanishads, they are known as the Shruti literature. And Shruti means heard, that which is heard. So you just hear it from the teacher and then imbibe it. Smriti is what comes out after you hear those teachings, you imbibe them, you digest them, and you, uh, some of the munis, the great contemplatives, they, 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 they came up with their own ideas based on those teachings. They are known as smriti. Smriti, in fact, as I said, it means mindfulness, it means memory, it means remembrance. So when you remember those teachings and you live a life in accordance to them, then, so the very purpose of, of these two, uh, Ramayana, Mahabharata, as well as the Puranas, is to present uh, an easily accessible version of those ancient Vedic teachings through stories, through historical stories, as well as imagined stories. So you have both types, you have actual mm-hmm. history, and you have also many imagined stories. The whole idea of itihasa, as it is known in, 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 in Sanskrit, which is today translated as history, but originally in the Vedic context, in fact, simply meant to present the deeper essence of the Vedic teachings, which are not easily graspable, Uh, unless a person really leads such a life and has dedicated years and years to study them so that it becomes easily graspable to anyone and everyone. So that's the purpose of the Mahabharata, that's the purpose of the Puranas and of Ramayana. Is that That's a nice way of putting it, because often people will say things like, oh, uh, it didn't really happen, it's just a story. But that's a very elementary way of looking at what could be argued as some of the most powerful moral books of our history yes we uncover a wealth of knowledge from these things so whether they happen or not yes it doesn't even enter the room uh, i I believe would you agree yes i would agree i would really agree and uh, the message is what, and the, the, the slight difference between Mahabharata and uh, Ramayana is that in Ramayana, everything is very clear, black and white. You have 
the, the, the evil side, Ravana, you have the mm. good side, Rama. So it's very, very clear. Uh, Mahabharata explores more the, the gray zones. Sure. So Mahabharata is far more complex. There's a lot than, more characters, a lot more personalities. A lot more characters, a lot more personalities. You don't, uh, the, even the best characters are not all good. And even the mm. worst characters are not all bad. So you have, uh, you have the, the plot is far more. And in fact, the Mahabharata professes that to bring across dharma, sometimes which is garbed, in the garb or in the dress of adharma, or sometimes adharma, which is dressed as dharma, and sometimes dharma, which is dressed as itself. So these are the three possibilities. And how can uh, a person with a sharp intellect recognize each one of these as they are? Uh, the Mahabharata, through its stories, through its plots, and then, because uh, the plots are, in fact, just one-fifth of the Mahabharata. Wow. In fact, the Mahabharata is, is like, a, it's, 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 it's an encyclopedia yes, uh, of heard. ancient India. And it's yeah. vast. It has, uh, there is a saying of the Mahabharata itself, whatever is in here will be found somewhere else and whatever is not in here will not be found anywhere else so it's wow. really a collection of that's why it is very very big very, it's very not, yeah it's known as the epic it's, uh, it's known so, you as know, the epic yes the big my epic. my knowledge of mahabharat is it's huge that which came on tv i think it was 1988 or something like that bbc2 yes. it was that was just as i said the plot is just one fifth wow it's amazing book. to think because yes. i as a child i remember watching it and actually more recently during lockdown as a family we started watching it again my my teacher likes to say that used to say that this mahabharata serial is the sugar coating of your pill without wow. the pill <laughs> <laughs> okay, so obviously there's a lot, lot more to uncover. But I feel even as a child watching that, maybe subconsciously whatever principles and values were embedded in me are great. But even now, later on in life, where I'm beginning to intellectualize a bit further, um, standing on the shoulders of giants when it comes to academia and, and being privileged to even host a podcast to speak to great minds like yourselves, I am only now beginning to uncover some of the values and truths at a deeper level that would have come out of some of the stories. Like I remember cr crying when Bisham Patama was struck down by Arjun. Yes. And, and my mum remembers that day because as a child, I was only maybe four or five years old. It was, it was oh, maybe that uncovered something deep within me, but there were many stories along the way, which I'll go back to and revisit and realize I knew from a child. So I feel very blessed to have, and, and the same goes for the Ramayan, although I was a, a little younger. Um, I do have exactly similar memories. I was maybe eight or nine, and uh, we used to come in the evening back from the monastery where I studied, and then I and my father, we used to watch it uh, uh, on television, and I remember sometimes really crying quite yeah. a lot. Yes. The, the, the stories I hear of the time in India when it used to come on, obviously televisions are scarce, so the whole country would halt. Yes. And yes. tune in to the latest episode. Yes. And, if you were traveling uh, on a bus 
everybody agreed to stop at 9.30 in the morning and uh, just watch the episode and then move ahead. Wow. What <laughs> Nobody a, what wanted a way, to miss it. <laughs> what a way to unite a nation. And through the exploration of some of our ancient texts, and in yes. this case particularly the epic, and that's what the Mahabharata has done. Mahabharata really has united not only India, but I would say all of Southeast Asia, Mahabharata and Ramayana. It's extremely influential in Indonesia, uh, in Thailand, in, 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 in Cambodia, in, in all these countries. Uh, up to Philippines, these stories, they resonated so deeply in ancient times that even today, uh, particularly the Indonesians, they relate uh, immensely with uh, Ramayana and Mahabharata, wow. even today, apart from the Indians and the Nepalese. Uh, uh, I didn't know that. And yes. I, I mean, I've heard of the great temples of Southeast, but what you've just said there, yeah, makes me want to go and explore even further. Yeah. And so within the Mahabharata, we have the shining star, I'm, I'm going to call it, which is the Srimad Bhagavad Gita. Yes. Um, Help me understand why that is seen to be so important, because yeah. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are five Gitas in the Mahabharata. Uh, this is the most well-known one. And the reason I think it rose to such tremendous prominence is that there is no better summary of the Upanishads and remember, the Upanishads are a summary of the deeper teachings of the Vedas. So Gita becomes really the best summary of the Upanishads and the Vedas presented in a simple, easily accessible method. Simpler than the Upanishads, far simpler than the Vedas. And yet it really contains the very, usually what happens is that when you start simplifying things, you lose the depth. Hmm. But I think, and there, there were many attempts of simplification before the Bhagavad Gita, after the Bhagavad Gita, by Krishna himself. Krishna has, speak, has spoken three Gitas. Uddhava Gita is well known. Anugita to Arjuna at a later time is also well known. And then this Srimad Bhagavad Gita. And yet Srimad Bhagavad Gita stands out uniquely because it somehow does not lose that depth and also then the the whole the the circumstances in which it was spoken where arjuna is struck by grief and is suffering immensely and krishna tries to krishna instead of really teaching him anything just is trying to help him gain clarity by presenting the very summum bonum of the vedic teachings I think no other text in so short, I mean, just 700 verses. You have the Rig Veda, just the Rig Veda has more than 10,000 mantras. Wow. Historically, we believe that the whole, Ved, the whole of the Vedas have 100,000 mantras. So to summarize these 100,000 mantras in just 700 verses, which can be recited in one hour or one and a half hour, this was uh, like in Hindi, we say to fill the ocean into the pot 
gagar me sagar bhar dena. This is, I think, what the Bhagavad Gita does uh, to the utmost degree of perfection, more than any other text uh, known to me. And that's why it has this great uh, aura, this great name and respect in the Indian traditions. And yes, another thing that is very unique about the Bhagavad Gita, that within Hinduism, because there are so many different traditions, but this is so universal, it does not go into sectarian differences. And so every different sampradaya, as we call it in Sanskrit, mm. sect might not be the correct word, but mm. teacher-student tradition of yeah. wisdom, each one of them, without any discrimination, can relate to the Bhagavad Gita, because Bhagavad Gita is very u- universal, all-embracing. So that's also something very unique about the Bhagavad Gita, which is not the case with many other modern uh, by modern, I mean uh, texts which were composed in the last 2,000 or 2,500 sure. years. Very rarely am I lost for words and you paint the picture so vividly about how unique and uh, amazing the, the Bhagavad Gita is. But to someone who's never heard of it, I mean, the, the way you described it, it's almost like the guide to the guide to life. Like Yes. Uh, um and I've I was once told, you know, if if ever you're, you're facing a problem in life or you some hurdles and you've exhausted all your possibilities, you can turn to the Gita and you open it at any page, and whatever you find on that page will, will be sure to help you out. Um, That's my experience. That is that was Mahatma Gandhi's experience. Whenever he was faced with the greatest of problems during his freedom fight, he turned to the Bhagavad Gita from the first person who uh, Bal Gangadhar Tilak up to Mahatma Gandhi, I think every freedom fighter was deeply inspired by the Bhagavad Gita. It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that India received its freedom by following the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita. Wow. And that is a a guide to life and a guide to freedom for a nation. Yes. Ultimately, freedom from one's own ignorance. So, Mm. yes. Yes. Very, very Freedom powerful. is the core, the core message. Freedom from ignorance is really the core message of the Bhagavad Gita. And also it's, you know, and we talk about all these scriptures, right? As if, you know, earlier on we went into some detail about them being hymns or scripture or spoken. But at a, at a scientific level, at a mathematical level, these texts are near perfect. I remember I've got a friend, Dr. Rishi Handa, who we'll have to bring onto the podcast at some stage, was telling me, I'm going to get this quote wrong, but something along the lines of, if you divide the number of verses to words on each page of the Gita, you will get pi every time. Something like that. Some type of mathematical perfectionism within the text that is the Gita, is it? Yes, of course. Uh, I I don't know now specifically about that because I have not explored uh, these mathematical aspects of of the teachings. I've been more focused on on really the philosophical and uh, uh, the yogic aspect. But yes, uh, mathematics is part of astronomy, not astrology, but Vedic astronomy, Jyotish as it is called. Mm. Uh, It's uh, as part of rituals, uh, geometry, which is known as geometry, uh, I th- there is there is a lot to be explored, which, but unfortunately, I have not gone into that direction 
at all. No worries. There's plenty of wisdom that we're unlocking here today. Um, I, I don't even feel like we've scratched the surface when it comes to the Hindu library, but are there any other pieces of text or literature that you think we should definitely mention here today? Uh, okay, so we have already mentioned the Bhagavad Gita, we have mentioned uh, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, we have mentioned the Puranas, uh, particularly Bhagavata Purana, uh, which is very now well known in India. A lot of Bhagavad Saptaha go on. And there's also the, the, the Garud Puran? The Garuda Purana, they are part of the 18 Puranas, so there are 18 Puranas. And, and uh, there are particular Puranas. times at which these Puranas... Garuda Purana of... is usually uh, read uh, after somebody has passed away, yeah. specifically. And uh, Bhagavad Purana can be read at any time. It's, it's uh, the life stories of Krishna mainly, and they are very popular uh, in India. And then uh, from the 8th century onwards, you have this vast literature by the great Acharyas, Shankaracharya, 8th century, then Ramanujacharya, 10th century. Uh, they have written many, many commentaries on these works. And uh, so, yeah, so there is this entire Vedantic literature, as it is known, which starts with, with Shankaracharya primarily, but there are also some uh, authors prior to him. This Vedantic literature, so we should not uh, leave that out. Uh, I think, yeah, because that's really, that's, that's, the, the way to then explore the Bhagavad Gita, to explore uh, the Upanishads, and then ultimately to explore the Vedas through the teachings, depending on which tradition you belong to. If you belong to the Ramanuja tradition, you will explore it through his lens. Sure. If you belong to Shankaracharya's tradition, like I belong to Shankaracharya's tradition, so my lens will be Shankaracharya's uh, lens. Thank you very much for that, Siddhartha Ji. I think there are many more questions that one could have around the Hindu library. The Vijayaramantan podcast has done its best today in, in the short amount of time that we have to just open the doors. I think there are many more texts that we should definitely consider and explore. I have many more questions around sort of shastras, shlokas, mantras, um, and, and maybe primers on each of those, but we will have to explore another time. So Siddhartha Ji, thank you very much. Uh, for coming on the Vicharamanthan podcast today. Is there one nugget um, of knowledge or wisdom that you would like to share with our listeners? What would that be? My favorite passages, two of them. One is from the Rigveda, Ekam Sat. Uh, the, pre the truth is one, but Vipraha Bahudhavadanti, the wise express it in numerous ways. Let, therefore, beautiful thoughts come to me unhindered from everywhere. And then adding to this from the Bhagavad Gita, my preferred, my, my favorite passage from the Bhagavad Gita, be passionately engaged in the well-being of all beings. That's beautiful. That's very, very That's, nice. That these are my favorite passages from the Veda as well as the Bhagavad Gita. And these are words I think that we can all live by. Thank you very much, Siddhartha Ji, for sharing them with us. To all the listeners out there, I hope you've understood just a little bit more about how deep and rich 
the Hindu civilization is and the amazing pieces of literature and scripture that have come out of that. Like I said, we've only just begun to scratch the surface with such deep and meaningful texts. This is the Vicharamantan Podcast. My name is Sumit Sharma. Namaste. Thank you.